Chapter Three of The Devil's Paw by E. Phillips Oppenheim. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com. Chapter Three. Julian entered the drawing room at Maltonby Hall a few minutes before dinner time that evening. His mother, who was alone and for a wonder resting, held out her hand for him to kiss and welcomed him with a charming smile. Notwithstanding her gray hair, she was still a remarkably young-looking woman with a great reputation as a hostess. "'My dear Julian,' she exclaimed, "'you look like a ghost. Don't tell me that you had to sit up all night to shoot those wretched duck.' Julian drew a chair to his mother's side and seated himself with a little air of relief. "'Never have I been more conscious of the inroads of age,' he confided. "'I can remember when, ten or fifteen years ago, I used to steal out of the house in the darkness and bicycle down to the marsh with a twenty-bore gun on the chance of an odd shot. And I suppose, his mother went on, after spending half the night wading about in the salt water, you spent the other half talking to that terrible Mr. Furley. Quite right. We got cold and wet through in the evening. We sat up talking till the small hours. We got cold and wet again this morning, and here I am. "'A converted sportsman,' his mother observed. "'I wish you could convert your friend, Mr. Furley. "'There's a perfectly terrible article of his in the National this month. "'I can't understand a word of it, but it reads like sheer anarchy.' "'So long as the world exists,' Julian remarked, "'there must be socialists, and Furley is at least honest.' "'My dear Julian,' his mother protested, "'how can a socialist be honest?' their attitude with regard to the war too is simply disgraceful i am sure that in any other country that man fenn for instance would be shot what about your house party julian inquired with bland irrelevance all arrived i suppose they'll be down directly mr hannaway wells is here good old wells julian murmured how does he look since he became a cabinet minister portentous lady maltenby replied with a smile he doesn't look as though he would ever unbend. Then the Shervintons are here, and the Princess Torsky, your friend Miss Abbeway's aunt. The Princess Torsky? Julian repeated. Who on earth is she? She was English, his mother explained, a cousin of the Abbeways. She married in Russia and is on her way now to France to meet her husband, who is in command of a Russian battalion there. She seems quite a pleasant person, but not in the least like her niece. "'Miss Abbeway is still here, of course?' "'Naturally. I asked her for a week, and I think she means to stay. We talked for an hour after tea this afternoon, and I found her most interesting. She has been living in England for years, it seems, down in Chelsea, studying sculpture.' "'She is a remarkably clever young woman,' Julian said thoughtfully. "'But a little incomprehensible. If the Princess Torsky is her aunt, who were her parents?' Her father, the countess replied, was Colonel Richard Abbeway, who seems to have been military attaché at St. Petersburg years ago. He married a sister of the Princess Torsky's husband, and from her this young woman inherited a title which she won't use and a large fortune. Colonel Abbeway was killed accidentally in the Russo-Japanese War, and her mother died a few years ago. No German blood or anything of that sort, then? My dear boy, what an idea! his mother exclaimed reprovingly. On the contrary, the Torskys are one of the most aristocratic families in Russia, and you know what the Abbeways are. The girl is excellently bred, 
and I think her charming in every way. Whatever made you suggest that she might have German blood in her? No idea. Anyhow, I am glad she hasn't. Who else? The bishop, his mother continued, looking very tired, poor dear. Dr. George Lennard from Oxford, two young soldiers from Norwich, whom Charlie asked us to be civil to, and the great man himself. Tell me about the great man. I don't think I've seen him to speak to since he became prime minister. He declares that this is his first holiday this year. He is looking rather tired, but he has had an hour's shooting since he arrived and seemed to enjoy it. Here's your father. The Earl of Maltenby, who entered a moment later, was depressingly typical. He was as tall as his youngest son, with whom he shook hands absently, and with whom he resembled in no other way. He had the conventionally aristocratic features, thin lips, and steely blue eyes. He was apparently a little annoyed. "'Anything wrong, dear?' Lady Maltenby asked. Her husband took up his position on the hearthrug. "'I am annoyed with Stenson,' he declared. The countess shook her head. "'It's too bad of you, Henry,' she expostulated. "'You've been trying to talk politics with him. You know that the poor man was only longing for forty-eight hours during which he could forget that he was Prime Minister of England.' "'Precisely, my dear,' Lord Maltenby agreed. "'I can assure you that I have not transgressed in any way.' A remark escaped me referring to the impossibility of providing beaters nowadays, and to the fact that out of my seven keepers five are fighting. I consider Mr. Stenson's comment was most improper, coming from one to whom the destinies of this country are confided. "'What did he say?' the Countess asked meekly. "'Something about wondering whether any man would be allowed to have seven keepers after the war,' her husband replied, with an angry light in his eyes. If a man like Stenson is going to encourage these socialistic ideas, I beg your pardon, the bishop, my dear. The remaining guests drifted in within the next few moments. The bishop, Julian's godfather, a curious blend of the fashionable and the devout, the anchorite and the man of the people, Lord and Lady Shervington, elderly connections of the nondescript variety, Mr. Hannaway Wells, reserved yet urbane, a wonderful type of the supreme success of mediocrity, a couple of young soldiers, light-hearted and out for a good time, of whom Julian took charge, an Oxford Don who had once been Lord Maltenby's tutor, and last of all the homely, very pleasant-looking middle-aged lady, Princess Torsky, followed by her niece. There were a few introductions still to be effected. Whilst Lady Maltenby was engaged in this task, which she performed at all times with the unfailing tact of a great hostess, Julian broke off in his conversation with the two soldiers and looked steadfastly across the room at Catherine Abbeway as though anxious to revise or complete his earlier impressions of her. She was of medium height, not unreasonably slim, with a deliberate but noticeably graceful carriage. Her complexion was inclined to be pale. She had large, soft brown eyes and hair of an unusual shade of chestnut brown, arranged with remarkably effective simplicity. She wore a long string of green beads about her neck, a black tulle gown without any relief of color, but a little daring in its cut. Her voice and laugh as she stood talking to the bishop were delightful, and neither her gestures nor her accent betrayed the slightest trace of foreign blood. She was, without a doubt, extraordinarily attractive, gracious almost to freedom in her manner and yet with that peculiar quality of aloofness only recognizable in the elect a very appreciable charm. 
Julian found his undoubted admiration only increased by his closer scrutiny. Nevertheless, as he watched her, there was a slightly puzzled frown upon his forehead, a sense of something like bewilderment mingled with those other feelings. His mother, who had turned to speak to the object of his attentions, beckoned him, and he crossed the room at once to their side. "'Julian is going to take you into dinner, Miss Abbeway,' the Countess announced, "'and I hope you will be kind to him, for he's been out all night and a good part of the morning, too, shooting ducks and talking nonsense with a terrible socialist.' Lady Maltenby passed on. Julian, leaning on his stick, looked down with a new interest into the face which had seldom been out of his thoughts since their first meeting a few weeks ago. "'Tell me, Mr. Orden,' she asked, "'which did you find the more exhausting, tramping the marshes for sport, or discussing sociology with your friend?' "'As a matter of fact,' he replied, "'we didn't tramp the marshes. We stood still and got uncommonly wet, and I shot a goose which made me very happy.' that it must have been the conversation she declared is your friend a prophet or only one of the multitude a prophet most decidedly he is a mr miles furley of whom you must have heard she started a little miles furley she repeated i had no idea that he lived in this part of the world he has a small country house somewhere in norfolk julian told her and he takes a cottage down here at odd times for the wildfowl shooting "'Will you take me to see him to-morrow?' she asked. "'With pleasure, so long as you promise not to talk socialism with him.' "'I will promise that readily, out of consideration to my escort. "'I wonder how it is,' she went on, looking up at him a little thoughtfully, "'that you dislike serious subjects so much.' "'A frivolous turn of mine, I suppose,' he replied. "'I certainly prefer to talk art with you.' "'But nowadays,' she protested, it is altogether the fashion down at Chelsea to discard art and talk politics. It's a fashion I shouldn't follow, he advised. I should stick to art if I were you. Well, that depends on how you define politics, of course. I don't mean party politics. I mean the science of living as a whole, not as a unit. The princess ambled up to them. I don't know what your political views are, Mr. Orden, she said, but you must look out for shocks if you discuss social questions with my niece. In the old days they would never have allowed her to live in Russia. Even now I consider some of her doctrines the most pernicious I ever heard. Isn't that terrible from an affectionate aunt? Catherine laughed as the princess passed on. Tell me some more about your adventures last night. She looked up into his face, and Julian was suddenly conscious from whence had come that faint sense of mysterious trouble which had been with him during the last few minutes. The slight quiver of her lips brought it all back to him. Her mouth, beyond a doubt, with its half-tender, half-mocking curve, was the mouth which he had seen in that tangled dream of his when he had lain fighting for consciousness upon the marshes. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks .com.